from ClippingChains.com, where we are funding the adventurous life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and hi, how are you? Welcome to 2022. Thanks for your patience. I took a couple weeks off. I've been traveling. It's been great. I've been enjoying my break. But you know what, guys? I'm happy to be back. Today, we're going to revisit our boring investing strategy. This is part two. And as I mentioned here in a moment, I meant to have these two together side by side, but yeah, you know, things happen. So here we are. I don't want to belabor this too much, but again, guys, before we dive into this, I want to remind you as usual that neither I nor my wife are professional financial anythings. We don't have certifications. We don't, yeah, we don't claim to be professionals in this realm. These are just some things we did for ourselves over the years. We think we got great results. And we think maybe some other folks would be interested in knowing for educational or fun purposes. So here we are, right? Before we dive in, I want to remind you that this is a previously written post, and I do have links to that in your show notes. As usual, I think you'll get more bang for your buck if you can follow along with a web browser open. I've also got a whole lot of other links to relevant content from this discussion, both external and internal sources, as well as links to the part one of this series, which I do recommend you go and check out the written post and perhaps the podcast as well to get you going. Without further ado, let's take a look at part two of our boring guide to successful investing. We're looking at where exactly our money is, where are the buckets that hold our funds, and how are we funding those buckets? All right, let's do it. With only moderate delay, we are now back to part two of our really boring investing strategy. I did mean this to be a back-to-back episode, but the scheduling department here at CC Enterprises, aka me, didn't really take note of the holidays too much, and some travel I had coming up, so here we are (laughs) in 2022. So if you haven't already heard part one, I'd encourage you to back up, head on over to that podcast. Look through that post on the website and then come back to this one. It'll make a little bit more sense. So you have now, if you heard the first episode, a sense of our investing strategy in terms of our asset allocation. But that's not really helping you get started. So let's look at some common investment buckets. So these buckets are where we're going to be putting funds, where we're going to be putting our money. We can't just buy an index fund and put it in our wallet as a piece of paper. We need these sort of Um, different accounts to put money into. And we're going to dive a little bit into the nuts and bolts of how those work. It's really easy to get lost in the details. I want to break down the basics right up front. No more paralysis by analysis. Here are our top five pillars of a sound investing strategy. And I want to point out, there are some folks who will say, oh, maybe you should optimize this a little differently. There's a lot of different ways to slice this. Some of them may be more optimized than others. But guys, if you're doing this stuff anywhere remotely close to how I outline it in a very simple way, you are going to be light years ahead of a lot of folks, okay? So let's not get too crazy. Just follow these really basic outlines, and I think we'll be in great shape. 
So, step one, max out any tax advantage accounts you can. These include your 401k, an HSA, an IRA, 403b, kind of depending on whether you're in the private or public sector, you'll pay less taxes by maxing out these accounts first. And that is exciting. That's really exciting, guys. Like a cashew. You guys like cashews? Cashews are exciting. That's how exciting this is. If you have surplus funds, then step two is to open a taxable brokerage account. So a brokerage account is just kind of your garden variety investing account that you are going to be funding with your post-tax dollars. All that other stuff I was just talking about, that's done with pre-tax dollars. So before your employer takes out taxes, you can invest there. But once you have those post-tax dollars, now you can do your own investing and you can invest in whatever you want. So do this only after you've maxed out those tax advantage accounts or if you are saving for something on a longer horizon but before retirement. Say something maybe 10 years out. Some people might use this tactic. We recommend opening all accounts with Vanguard. Again, no affiliation there wherever you have the option. There are other accounts, but Vanguard's a great one. And then once you have these buckets or these accounts open, you want to fund these accounts with low-fee whole stock market index funds. We'll be talking a bit about that, and we already did in the last episode about how we're mostly focusing on stocks because those are your primary growth mechanism, and you want these to be heavy on stocks, light on bonds, and keep things very simple with no more than two or three funds. Next, you want to regularly contribute to these accounts. That is a really hard word to say. Regularly. Regularly contribute to these accounts. Um, We always had an automatic contribution. This is something I've talked a lot about. Then that was made to our taxable account. And then, of course, our 401k was an automatic contribution that came out of every single paycheck. And so we want to make it automatic as we can. That's very important. And then finally, as usual, don't pay attention to the market. I mean, you can if you want, if you know your own psychology and you just like reading the news. But in general, the folks who really pay attention to the market or to the news, um, you know, I think walk around a bit more anxiety because there's always something out there. Bad news sells, right? It gets our attention. And I'm going to keep saying this. The reason the stock market gets a bad rap is because of speculation and emotion. Emotion. I'm going to keep pounding that table. We humans are emotional creatures and we aren't best optimized to make these decisions with our brain. So take your brain out of it and get it automated. Success requires 100% trust and discipline to the plan. Okay? Let's start with our first primary tax advantage bucket, number one, and that's the 401k. This is your workplace retirement plan. And so this is primarily talking to folks in the private sector. If you're in the public sector, you might have an equivalent of a 403b, something like that. And I got to admit, I'm not really an expert on those accounts because I worked my entire career in the private sector. But there's a lot of similarities, so let's just go ahead anyway. And so some folks might say, hey, I don't like to invest. I don't want to invest. I don't want anything to do with it. But they've been participating in a 401k or equivalent. So my news to you is that you've already been investing and maybe you didn't even know it. And if you've been happy with those results, then hey, let's go let's go dig a little deeper. Why not? And so how these plans work, basically you set up with your employer to deposit a percentage of your pre-tax income each and every paycheck to the funds of your choosing. The idea here is that we want to divert every dollar we possibly can to these accounts. You should, at a minimum, allocate enough money to cover any company match because that is free money, guys. It is free money. 
if a company is offering to match you on your contributions, man, there aren't too many reasons not to get that. And a lot of folks will stop there and then go do some other investing on their own, especially if their workplace fund options are not very attractive, which is sometimes the case. But man, I really can't think of many reasons why you would leave that free money on the table. So when we were working, we were both getting 100% match up to the first 6% of our income, which is pretty good, I got to say. And yeah, for sure, we maxed that out. And so I'm serious, guys. Get the company match. Don't leave free money on the table. In 2022, you can now contribute up to $20,500 to a 401k. So that being said, I would recommend trying to max out those accounts if you can, right? So I would say you need to be making at least $50,000 in pre-tax income to allow you to probably do this realistically. Um, Some folks are going to be doing it on less salary, but that's kind of the range I tell people to get to because that would at least allow you to max out a 401k. You're getting that contribution from your employer, most likely, if you have it. You're saving a good chunk of your income, and you are getting a lot of tax benefits. Speaking of which, let's talk about taxes on a 401k. Any income contributed to a 401k lowers your tax liability in the year of contribution. And that's really cool, right? So we've talked about this before. If in 2022, you contribute that max, which again is $20,500. If you contribute that $20,500, that comes off your total taxable income. If you made $100,000 minus $20,000, you're roughly at about $79,500 or exactly at $79,500, and you can only be taxed on that. So that is pretty cool. Not only are you saving money for your future, but you are lowering your taxes for the current year. Exclamation point on that sentence, because that's exciting. Remember, cashews, things we like, steak, maybe apples. Some people like apples. Those are all exciting things. 401ks are right in there with it. How it works with these. Again, your employer will take money out before taxes are paid. It goes into your 401k. You've selected some funds, which we'll talk about in a minute. And that just sits there and grows. And then in theory, when you make withdrawals on that account, at 59 and a half or above without penalty, then you will pay taxes. And the idea is that maybe when you were working, you were in a higher tax bracket, say the 24% tax bracket, something like that. And then one day when you retire, you're now in the 10 or 12% tax bracket. So you saved on some taxes. So now you're taxed at 10 or 12%. But ha ha ha, I have a secret. If you follow the Roth conversion ladder, which we've talked about and already a number of times and I've written about, and you'll have a link in your show notes about, you can get around this and you can spend retirement money early without tax or penalty. That's also exciting. But typically, if you were to withdraw this money before the age of 59 and a half, you would be subject to penalties in addition to taxes. So you don't want to do what I did when I was young to go on a road trip in like 2008. I was moving from Oregon to Arizona to a attend graduate school. I had a very small 401k. I'd started with a company. Didn't seem like much money and I could use a little bit for my road trip. So I cashed it out. I took a tax hit. I took a penalty and I probably spent it on PBR to be quite honest with you and gas money. So don't be stupid. That could have been worth a lot more money now. And by the way, isn't it weird to hear an adult age half, like 59 and a half? That is so strange. I'm going to make a birthday cake for myself anyway and my wife. We're going to have a 59 and a half birthday. And if you have one too, please invite me, especially if you're in Southern Utah, I'll come and I'll have a piece of your 59 and a half birthday cake. 
Okay, this is weird. Okay, let's look at the fund selection for a 401k or equivalent account. A lot of folks like I did early in my career will just kind of pick one of these retirement target mutual funds. So let's say it's, what year is it? 2022 and you want to retire in 20 years, 30 years. Maybe you would pick a 2045 or 2055. I don't know. I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but you might take a 2055 retirement target mutual fund. And so these mutual funds are designed with sliding stock to bond allocation models dependent on your age and traditional retirement horizon. So in general, when you're young, you're early in your career, they'll be weighted more heavily towards stocks. And as you approach these traditional retirement horizons, say in 20 or 30 years, it starts softening the volatility. It starts lowering the stocks, increasing the bonds, and kind of shifting into wealth preservation mode. But that's kind of old school, right? We can do better. We can do a lot better. We can fast track a little bit our wealth accumulation because these old models assume you're just saving like 10% of your income. And they just assume you're spending 90% of it. And they don't care if you're making 300, 400, 500,000. The old model assumes you spend most or all of the money you make. But we don't live like that, do we, guys? We're going to be saving a good chunk, maybe more than half of our income, maybe a lot more than half our income. But don't go getting all weird on me and just sitting home and doing nothing and saving. You don't want to take it too far. But we can do better than the traditional model. I don't know where I was going with this, but... Basically, when you take one of these retirement target mutual funds, they will gradually shift to a higher bond allocation. And a higher bond allocation may soften the volatility of equities, but overall will lower your gains. The problem with these retirement target funds, they're decent, actually, and they take a lot of work out of it. You don't have to go research companies. They've, they're kind of whole market funds, and I like that. But the fees are usually somewhat high. And you'll recall in the last post, we talked about those expense ratios. And again, I've got another post in your show notes right down there. It's called expense ratios and fees. They'll hose you big time. Again, because they will. If you have a large fee on these index funds, and I guarantee you, if you are in a retirement target fund, you probably do. Go take a look. Remember, VT Sachs, our favorite index fund, has about a 0.04% expense ratio. Go take a look at what you've got in your 401k. If it's heading north of if it's anywhere approaching 1% or higher, run, get out of that thing. You want to look for a whole stock market or something like an S&P 500 index fund, something that approximates the performance of the S&P 500 or the entire stock market and is broad-based, usually with thousands of companies. Again, Vanguard's um, BT Sachs Total Stock Market Index Fund has over 4,000 companies to date in it. So you want to look for something that's broad-based, again, re represents lots of industries, lots of companies, and has low expense ratio. Very much you want to look for something under 1%, closer to 0.05% or lower. And I realize not everyone has a ton of options in their workplace retirement fund, but you do want to look for something broad-based and with low expense ratio. And you want to put the majority or all of your money towards that fund, dependent on your risk profile. Again, you'll recall in our last episode, my wife and I were very comfortable with going heavy on equities. We wanted to fast track our wealth aggregation or amalgamation, if you want to use fancy words. And we went 90 to 95% stocks. So you figure out where you are happy with that and, and land on something that makes you sleep at night. So your company is very unlikely to offer a really nice index fund like VT Sachs. So keep an eye out for broad-based index funds and low expense ratios. 
For those of you in the public sector, I've enjoyed pushing people towards the millionaire educator for a while. I don't know if he's very active in blogging anymore, but he really knew how to work the system on the public sector accounts. And he was able to save a whole lot of money on a teacher's salary. So you teachers out there, I've heard this a lot. Teachers don't make enough money. They can't save and invest. Tell that to this guy. This guy, I'm pretty sure he retired early or was able to. I'm not exactly sure on the details, but this guy and his wife have been able to squirrel away a lot of money because they were smart about how to use these really quite excellent public sector retirement accounts to their advantage. And there's a lot of tricks here. And it's not even tricks. It's not dirty. It's not anything. It's just a lot of stuff people don't know. It's a lack of education. And so I encourage you to follow the links to Millionaire Educator. And if you guys know of any other teachers doing really fantastic work, let me know. And I'll get that in the show notes as well. Okay, let's address the tax advantage bucket number two. And that is the health savings account or HSA. Guys, I'm really excited about this one. You know why? Because the health savings account is actually a very special little retirement account. And here's why. It's because these accounts or the funds you put in them are triple tax advantage. So you can contribute pre-tax from your employer. You can then invest within these buckets into mutual funds or index funds, whatever you want. Largely, sometimes they are more limited by what's available. Those funds can grow tax-free, and then withdrawals can be made tax and penalty-free, with some exceptions, which we will address in just a second. So in general, these are set up for medical expenses. You're wondering, why am I so excited about an account that otherwise sounds like a healthcare account? So in general, that is the intention, is that you're setting aside money for healthcare spending And normally, I think the assumption is that you would just use a health savings account to pay for medical expenses that are not covered by insurance on any given calendar year. So what we've done in the past and continue to do today is just go ahead and pay cash for any sort of healthcare needs that are not covered by insurance. And we let all our HSA contributions just continue to grow in the market. And so the idea is that much, much later, many years later, could be decades later, we can reimburse ourselves for old healthcare spending because there is no requirement that HSA funds must be spent within the calendar year of the contribution. That's often confused with an FSA, a flex spending account, where you have to spend that money in the calendar year. If you use this fund for approved healthcare spending, these funds can be spent tax and penalty free for anything at any time in your life. So this is kind of what we've always thought of as our kind of long-term health play. Folks often ask me an email, well, what are you going to do about healthcare needs in the future? And my answer is, by and large, the HSA. We are contributing the max of this every single year. We don't have to have earned income, which is wonderful. I'll talk about that in just a second. But we can contribute the max to this every year. We put all our contributions in VT Sachs. Again, that's our favorite index fund. And those contributions will grow and compound in the market for decades. And then one day when I'm older and in much more need of, I don't know, high healthcare spending, I'll open this HSA account and be like, oh, daddy, that is a whole lot of money for my old needs. So that is why I like the HSA. So again, I want to harp on this a little bit. Any of these contributions are done tax-free. So before 
your employer takes taxes out. You can put funds into an HSA where you can invest. You can set up an investment account within your HSA. Those funds can grow tax-free and then can be withdrawn tax-free, especially for any sort of medical care. And then after 65, you can use them on anything, but you will have to pay ordinary income tax if you don't use it for medical expenses. So after age 65, you could buy a new refrigerator, a new dog, a whole bunch of bottled water, all with your health savings account, but you would have to pay ordinary income. And ideally, you're in a low tax bracket anyway, so no sweat. But what we would like to preferentially use this for is for healthcare spending. One important note we've noticed in the last year, we thought that once we left our standard W-2 jobs, our days of contributing to our HSA would be over. We were surprised to find this year that there actually is no earned income requirement to contribute to an HSA. So while we are not getting the full triple tax advantage because we are using previously taxed dollars to fund it, we are able to lower our tax obligation. And so another great thing about an HSA is that it works just like a traditional IRA or a 401k in that your contributions lower your tax obligation in the year you contribute. Okay, so that's another really great benefit of the HSA. It's another one of these tools you can use to chip away your taxable income. The catch, though, with these is that you must be enrolled in a high deductible health care plan, or HDHP for short. Although, when you're talking out loud, I'm not sure HDHP is actually any shorter. <laughs> anyway, a high deductible health care plan is kind of what it sounds. You have a higher deductible. So you'll pay lower monthly premiums, which is great, although your deductible will be quite high. And so a lot of the plan won't really kick in until you've achieved that deductible. So for those with very minimal health care needs, I personally really like the those bronze level kind of high deductible plans because you get this HSA. And also, frankly, I just don't have a lot of high health care spending, even with a few conditions of my own. Got some things going on that require a little bit more spending on healthcare, but it does not outweigh the additional monthly costs of a higher tiered plan. So again, and this is for the American audience, by the way, guys. I, I appreciate the international audience who are listening now. Um, <laughs> you guys don't have to think about this. You probably have universal healthcare, which is wonderful, but you are missing out on this wonderful little retirement plan that we have, which is the HSA. The uh, downside, of course, is that we must deal with the American healthcare system, which is, by any other metric, a complete gong show. However, <laughs> we at least get an HSA. It throws a bone there. So take advantage of this, guys, if you can or you are comfortable with the high deductible healthcare plan. And not all come with an HSA. So seek out one that includes one. The max yearly contribution in 2022 is $3,650 for an individual or $7,300 for a family or a couple that is married and filing jointly. Again, individual, $3,650 or family, $7,300. That is your max contribution for 2022. Uh, and we will fund a family amount, that max $7,300, in early 2022. With or without earned income, it doesn't really matter. And we want to go ahead and front load that, you know, assuming that always that the market is going to be going up over time. It in general makes sense to max out any accounts you can early in the year. 
because, you know, look back most years, the market was at lower values earlier in the year and finished at higher values. That's generally how things go. Not always, but we'll hedge our bets and try and get that maxed out early in 2022. So again, to summarize real quick, because a lot of people have trouble understanding these HSAs. Yes, they are indeed healthcare funds, but you can contribute to these with pre-tax dollars. You can, inside these funds, you've got to actually go and manually set it up, but you can set up investment accounts, make sure you get an HSA that allows investments. They usually actually, what they're doing is setting up a brokerage account, usually with another third party, like mine's with TD Ameritrade. I use Lively HSA and they use TD Ameritrade to set up a, a, a little brokerage account within Lively. And then I just dump all that money into VT Sachs, 100% of it, and that can grow tax-free. And then after age 65, I can withdraw these penalty and tax-free for any approved medical expenses. And by the way, I can, I can withdraw for medical expenses at any time. It doesn't matter. But if you want to spend them on anything, you have to wait until you're age 65 to not pay a penalty. But you will be taxed ordinary income. It's a little confusing. Are we clear? So if I want to spend this stuff on medical expenses, it is triple tax advantage at any point. It's a great long-term play for those considering their healthcare needs as they age. All right. Let me do a brief tangent on insurance just in general. I kind of like this idea of carrying a high deductible on almost any insurance policy for those that have appreciable liquid assets. So for those of us that have been saving and we can generate cash quickly, again, maybe not for the real estate folks that have a lot of their assets tied up in real estate, but for someone like us who's saved a lot in, re in retirement or other brokerage accounts, and we can make that cash liquid and get it into our checking account in a day or minutes or maybe just a couple of days, I really like the idea of an insurance policy that has a high deductible. And we do this on our medical care. We do this on our homeowner's insurance. We do this on our car insurance because in general, it favors that kind of model. Nine times out of 10, you're not going to need it and you'll pay less on premiums. And in the rare case you do, sure, you've got cash to cover it. Uh, Mr. Money Mustache, one of my original um, inspiration for getting into this world of financial independence, had this moniker that insurance is a tax on people who are bad at math. That's a little harsh, but it's true. And the insurance industry preys on your fear that you won't have cash to cover things if something happens. And for a lot of people, that's true. So they actually pay more over time to cover that one-off situation that might occur. But for those of us that have a lot of appreciated stocks or other wealth that we can make liquid, we could cover any big deductible if we need to on any given year. All right, let's talk about the tax advantage bucket number three, and that is the individual retirement account or more likely known as the IRA. So you've saved enough to max out a 401k, an HSA, or the like with pre-tax dollars. You receive your paycheck, pay your bills, and maybe still have money left to spare. You're one of those fortunate folks out there. So what is next? You don't want those funds to pile up in a largely useless checking or traditional savings account. So for most folks, the next bucket to fill that water is running downstream from bucket to bucket. That bucket we want to fill is the Roth IRA. So that's the Roth Individual Retirement Account. And there are a variety of IRAs out there with different tax implications. For instance, a traditional IRA acts a lot more like your 401k and that contributions are tax deductible in the calendar year. You make those contributions 
But let's keep it simple here and suggest that you first look into a Roth IRA. The beauty of the Roth IRA is that any gains you make in the market, once those funds are in that account, are tax-free. So unlike a brokerage account where the gains are taxed as capital gains, that's not true in the Roth IRA. In 2022, you can invest in a Roth IRA if you earn less than $129,000 as an individual, or if you earn less than $204,000 if you are married and filing jointly. The contribution limits. Those remain unchanged from previous years. If you are age 49 and under, you can only contribute $6,000 per person. If you are 50 and older, you can do what's called a catch-up contribution and contribute an additional $1,000 and get that up to $7,000 per year for an individual. So a Roth IRA is funded by you after you get your paycheck. That means that all dollars are post-tax, but funds are allowed to grow in the market tax-free. You can withdraw both contributions and gains tax and penalty-free after five years. So those gains need to season for five years. Why? I don't know. But the gains must season and sit in that account for five years before they can be withdrawn tax and penalty-free. Your contributions, however, can be withdrawn tax and penalty-free anytime. The money you put in, not the gains, but the money you put in can be withdrawn tax and penalty-free if you need them anytime. But it's best to avoid withdrawal and instead allow all funds to grow in the market as long as possible, right? Okay, so let's talk about funding an IRA. You can't just put money in there and you have to pick funds, right? Just with all these accounts. You can't just leave it in a money market account and expect it to grow. Uh, I, I've seen that actually where folks have thought they were investing. It was just sitting in a money market account, which is basically a savings account, and they had not allocated funds and thought they were investing for sometimes uh, years, and turns out they weren't. So again, with all these buckets as a friendly reminder, we do actually have to go in and select some funds. Now, the beauty about a Roth IRA is this is where you can really start to choose anything you want in your workplace retirement accounts or a certain HSAs. You, you're kind of at the mercy of what is offered. But once you're in a Roth IRA, you can choose any funds you like. And that, for us, means we get to enter the wonderful world of Vanguard and dive headfirst into the funds we've described in Part 1, such as VT Sachs. As usual, keep it simple. Invest in one or two broad-based index funds. Set up monthly contribution that suits your level of comfort and enjoy the ride. I should note that IRA accounts can also be funded with rollover funds from a previous employer's 401k. So if you had a 401k with traditional or Roth contributions, you can roll those over into an IRA. There are no income limits. Just because you're a high income earner, there's no problem rolling over an old Roth or traditional IRA. Because a lot of times you'll maybe not have great fund options with your employer plan. So you can roll those over into Vanguard and start picking the funds that are more um, tax or fee efficient. That'll do better for you. All right. It's worth noting that anyone who makes over those income limits I discussed again for an individual that's 129,000 or as marrying filing jointly, that would be 204,000. You might think you can't contribute to a Roth IRA there was some sort of news late in 2021 about maybe the Roth, the backdoor Roth going away. For now, that's still in place. So 
For those of you who are the fortunate high income earners and still want to contribute to a Roth IRA, there is a backdoor method, and I've got a link in your show notes on how to do that. It's not slimy. It's not sleazy. It's just a way for higher income earners to also contribute. Finally, I'll add one point about bonds. Because bonds spit off a bunch of dividends, those are considered by many investors to be somewhat tax inefficient, and the conventional wisdom says to hold bonds in these tax advantage accounts, such as a Roth IRA or perhaps a workplace retirement account. So in this sort of environment today, the yields are quite low, so it's not really as important as it might be, as conventional wisdom would suggest. Honestly, these days you can kind of put bonds really wherever, but we've kind of always followed that conventional wisdom and we prioritize keeping our bonds in our Roth IRAs or other IRAs or our uh, previous workplace retirement accounts, which have now been rolled over into IRAs, as I discussed a moment ago. So think about keeping most of your stocks in other accounts. It doesn't matter where you put a stock, honestly, but keep think about keeping a bond in these tax advantage accounts, although I have to admit that's less important today in today's low yield environment. Okay. Okay. So if you have maxed out your tax advantage buckets, you fund them in an HSA, a Roth IRA, the next bucket downstream, water spilling over into the next bucket. Bucket number four are the post-tax brokerage accounts. These are great, basically. These are your, again, garden variety investment account that actually a lot of people contribute to before they've even maxed out their 401k. A lot of people think that this is where investing starts. So folks may not even be um, contributing to an employer 401k, but they've got a brokerage account and they're buying GameStop and all kinds of stuff. But again, we want to get those pre-tax buckets filled first, and then we'll open a brokerage account. We have a joint brokerage account that we opened in both of our names, and we have largely used this to fund our VT Sachs. Again, that's our favorite Vanguard total stock market index fund, which you could do both inside of an HSA probably and a Roth IRA, and now brokerage. Most of you probably will not have this available in your workplace retirement funds, but you want to approximate that fund as best as possible or find something very similar. This fund tracks the performance of thousands of companies, has a very low expense ratio at 0.04%, and you can get going with only $3,000. And again, if you don't want to start with that much money, you can start with the ETF version of this called VTI. It's the same fund by all intents and purposes, has a 0.03% expense ratio. And I've heard some readers told me there are ways to automate contributions through Robinhood, I believe, but eh, I don't know. I don't know if I like Robinhood. So I operate only in Vanguard and there, to my knowledge, you cannot do automatic contributions with VTI. But anyway, so we pretty much were just hitting VTSAC hard in our brokerage account and to a lesser degree our our bonds, which was about 5%. So the only difference between a brokerage account and a Roth IRA is that funds do not grow tax-free in a brokerage account. So if you are getting gains, capital gains on these funds, you are subject to taxes on those. So you want to let these funds typically grow for at least a year, which puts you in the long-term capital gains category. And that's very favorable, guys. So for like my wife and I, married filing jointly, we can spend over $80,000 or right around $80,000 on gains, not just our savings, but we could realize $80,000 in capital gains and pay 0% taxes on that. That's why the tax system in America is very favorable for us who want to participate in this. So in your show notes, I've got some resources. I've written a few posts addressing the brokerage account, how to set one up, what goes in them, 
and why right there in your show notes. Okay, let's summarize our boring investment strategy. First, asset allocation. We held 90 to 95% stocks and variable amounts of bonds and cash dependent on market conditions in our working years. Generally, we held about 5% of our total savings each in cash and bonds at any given time. The only thing that's changed since we left our jobs a couple of years ago is that we have adjusted to about an 80-20 portfolio. That's about 80% stocks and 20% of the cash and bond equivalent. So I kind of put cash into the same bucket as bonds. They both act like softening. Again, bonds in theory should make a little bit more money than cash, but I don't know how well that holds up these days lately. We do keep a bit more cash on hand than is typical. A lot of these fire enthusiasts don't keep much cash on hand at all, barely more than enough to pay monthly bills. Well, we've got a couple of years worth of cash because, hey, that's what makes my wife and I, especially my wife, sleep soundly at night. Nothing helps me sleep soundly because I don't sleep that well. Yeah, I do. I'm not sad. Anyway, I sleep pretty well, no matter what. But my wife likes a little bit more cash to help her sleep at night. And so that is what we do because you know what? We know our psychology and we know what works for us. And that is important, guys. This is what works for us. This isn't necessarily what works for you. So know thyself. Okay, and then with the buckets, we max out both our 401k accounts each year. And so for two people, you can do in excess of $40,000 in 2022 if you're married and filing jointly. We also maxed out an HSA account when we were working. That is now over $7,300 in 2022. And then if you can, max out a Roth IRA. That's $6,000 per person if you are below those income limits. And then just start piling the rest into a brokerage account. If you have anything to save, put it in a brokerage account. There are no income limits. There are no contribution limits. And uh, and if you need to roll over some 401k plans into IRAs with Vanguard, I'd recommend it because there you can get your money into better funds than you probably could with your old workplace retirement accounts. Then for funds, if we're in our 401k or an HSA account where we might be a little bit more limited, you are at the mercy of what is offered. I'd look for broad-based and low-cost index funds, particularly anything that tracks the stock market as a whole, or at least the S&P 500. So look for any things that say, yeah, whole market, S&P 500, maybe large cap is a pretty good bet. I'd really maybe avoid anything that says growth or high yield in the name of the fund. That sounds great. It sounds like they're going to make you a lot of money, but those are usually a lot more volatile, carry a lot more risk, and could, uh, yeah, poke you in the butt. So you don't want that. These funds are likely to underperform the market as a whole over the long haul. So don't don't kind of don't get attached to the hype on the growth or high yield. I probably wouldn't fund my whole retirement on Bitcoin or company stock or anything like that. Again, if you want to play with that stuff, I'm not going to sweat you. If you think you know what you're doing, you want to pick some individual stocks, that's fine. But my recommendation would be to keep that to 5% or less of your total net worth. Maybe 10%, maybe. Just don't go betting the farm on a single company or cryptocurrency or something, this, these emerging sort of things. Yeah, any one thing, I would never put my money into any one thing. If you want to invest in your friend's restaurant or a climbing gym or whatever, I'd keep that to 5% or less of your net worth. Just don't overexpose yourself on that sort of stuff, all right? Then once you're in an IRA or a brokerage account, you can pretty much get anything you want 
We really like VT Sachs or the Total Bond uh, under Vanguard. I believe that's VBMFX as well. We don't do a lot with that one, maybe 5 or 10%, but mostly VT Sachs is where we were putting our money. But let's bring this all together. You know, we've had two posts on this, all this investing in buckets. It's kind of overwhelming. But let's start really at the basics. Step one is just to save more money. If you can save more money, you really are doing a lot better than most folks out there. Again, the old advice was to save 10% of your income. A lot of folks don't even do that. And of course, there's a lot of society constraints on those who can and cannot play ball. But a lot of folks can play ball. And I think we've been able to show that you can have a very enjoyable life. You don't have to live like a pauper. You don't have to be cold or hot or whatever, living a miserable life. You can still, if you focus on that 20% of your spending that has 80% of the outcome, then you're getting ahead. It's the Pareto's principle. Really look to increase your savings rate first. Then, once you've got some margin, you want to look to invest. And so we've spent these last two podcasts talking about how to invest, where to invest, and some options on what to buy. Not only are you investing in your future, but you are lowering your tax obligation today and hopefully always. And finally, I want to challenge the way folks think about money. Most folks don't do good by themselves with their money. So we don't want to model our financial choices off of what the masses are doing. We want to look for uncommon results. Remember to put every dollar into perspective and question the value of every cent. It's really that simple. All right, guys, I think that is enough for today. Please let me know if you have any questions. Leave a comment, email me, and let me know if there's anything here that I've missed or not covered or glazed over, and I'll get it corrected. All right, guys, thank you so much. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. For the original posts and all additional resources, look no further than your show notes on your podcast app or at clippingchains.com. Also, I have a big, uncomfortable ask. I don't like doing this, but I got to. Could you consider leaving a rating on either Apple or Spotify podcasts? Spotify recently announced they're allowing listeners to review shows, so I'd love to have your opinions on either platform and be one of those early Spotify reviewers. That feels good to be on the cutting edge, right? Anyway, that helps me grow this show and reach other folks who might benefit from this information. And guys, I really do appreciate that. Also, for those that are not aware, I am still producing written content on financial and lifestyle tips, habits, and strategies on the website at clippingchains.com. I really appreciate and I think you might enjoy heading on over and subscribing there again at clippingchains.com where you can get a notification of all posts. Also, with that subscription, you get a net worth and spending tracking spreadsheet that truly is a fan favorite. Folks really like that thing and it comes straight to your inbox with your subscription. And all you get is maybe one email a week. That's it, I won't bog you down. All right, guys, who doesn't like a good spreadsheet anyway? But let's get out of here. I will see you soon. Love you so much. Thanks for having you here. 